So Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 20. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of, our, of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father or mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they are not to honor their father or mother with it. Thus you nullify the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites! Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their their teachings are merely human rules. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth does not defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain this parable to us. Are you so dull, Jesus asked them? Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person, but eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. Hi, everyone. Uh, now, I've got PowerPoint, but it's a little bit washed out, so... Oh, that's better. Yeah, great, thank you. Uh, if we've not met, my name is Mike. Um, Joseph mentioned at the start that St. Matt's has six congregations. I'm the minister of one that meets in the morning. Uh, but it's really great to be with you here uh, now. We're going through Matthew 15. It would be really great if you've got it open in front of you as we go through. For many years, uh, before I became a minister, I worked for a really large engineering company. This company had offices all through Australia, so Perth, Sydney, Melbourne, Adelaide, Brisbane, Hobart. They also had offices in South America, parts of Europe and parts of Asia. It was a really big company. One day, the guy that started that company, the guy whose name is on the building, flew into Perth for a meeting. And frighteningly, I had to attend this meeting. Uh, On one hand, I was like super excited. This is the top guy. You know, his name is on the building. On the other hand, I was really nervous Like, what happens if in the meeting, if he asks me a question and I don't know what to say? What happens if in front of everybody, he asks me some really technical engineering question that I don't know how to answer? Uh, Then, uh, as the meeting is starting and it gets underway, in front of everybody, he looks at me and his mouth starts to move and he starts asking me a question. And as the question is coming out, I'm thinking to myself, Oh, if I can answer this, I'm going to look great. This is going to be really good for my career. But on the other hand, if I stuff this up, I'm going to look pretty stupid. 
So on one hand, I'm feeling super excited. On the other hand, I'm feeling like I need to find a bathroom. And in front of everyone, he starts to ask this question that comes out. Hello, he says. What's your name? (laughs) And as soon as he asks it, I'm thinking in my head, yeah, I reckon I've got this. Now, you can understand my emotions, right? My kind of nerves, my anxiety, my excitement as the top guy kind of visits for a meeting. Well, as this story in Matthew's Gospel opens, I suspect that's how Jesus' disciples are probably feeling because Jesus and his disciples, they get a visit from some very important people who've come to ask Jesus a question. Look at who comes for a meeting with Jesus in verse 1. Verse 1. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem. Now, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, they are like the highest management of the Jewish religious system. These guys are the most important religious leaders of Jesus' day, and they've come from Jerusalem, the most important religious city for Jews. They've come from Jerusalem to ask Jesus a question. So here's a map. This doesn't seem to be clicking too well. Here's a map. Did that work? Oh, good. Uh, Here's a map of first century Palestine. Now, Jerusalem, the religious city that the leaders have come from, is down here. Galilee, where Jesus is, is right up the top. And so these religious leaders, they have walked over 100 kilometres to get here. Now, there's no buses, there's no trains, so that journey probably took them a couple of days in the heat. And all of that to ask Jesus one question. So this has got to be a really important question. And so Jesus' disciples, they're probably feeling like I was when that top guy at the company flew in for this meeting. Maybe the disciples are thinking, wow, these really important religious leaders from the most important religious city, they've come here to ask our teacher something. What are they going to ask our teacher Maybe they'll ask him how he does his miracles. Maybe they'll ask some really important and deep spiritual question. You can kind of imagine the disciples saying uh, to the important religious leaders, come, come, come and meet Jesus. Jesus, may I introduce to you the Pharisees and teachers of the law. They've come all the way from Jerusalem, Jesus, to ask you a question. And then the lead Pharisee kind of clears his throat and steps forward and says, Jesus... We've come to ask you, why don't your disciples wash their hands before they eat? What? I mean, it sounds like something my mum would ask me if I ever started a religious movement. You know, That's nice, dear, but why don't your followers wash their hands before supper? I mean, this seems like such an unimportant question. But it can't be unimportant. These guys, they have travelled for over 100 kilometres to ask this question. This question can't just be about hygiene or food safety laws. The question, actually, it's really about Jesus breaking what they call the tradition of the elders. So look at verse 2. Here's the question. Look at how they phrase it. Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. So the religious leaders, they are upset that Jesus' disciples are breaking the tradition of the elders by not washing their hands before they eat. Now, what's the tradition of the elders? And why is it so important to them? Well, the tradition of the elders were all of the rules 
that the religious leaders added to God's command to help people work out how to live out what God had said. So, for example, God had said to his people Israel that you should have one day each week where you rest and you don't do any work. But what counts as work? If you decide to shave, is that work? If you decide to go to the gym and work on your health, does that count as work? If you want to just move the table in your house, does that count as work? So the religious leaders, to be helpful, made a bunch of rules about what did and did not actually count as work. That's the tradition of the elders. It's all these man-made rules that were designed to help make sure you never actually broke one of God's commands. You can think of it this way. Imagine God's commands are like a cliff and breaking God's laws are like walking off the edge of a cliff. Then the tradition of the elders was really like a fence, a set of rules that the leaders made up to make sure that nobody actually walked off the edge of the cliff. It was all these extra laws to make sure nobody got within 10 metres of the edge of the cliff. And hand-washing was one of the areas that the religious leaders had added extra laws. They put in fences to make sure that nobody accidentally broke what God had said. Because there was one thing that God had said about hand-washing. Priests, priests who worked in the temple had to wash their hands before they performed certain religious rituals. Now, that was nothing to do with hygiene. It was to kind of symbolise the moral cleanliness or the moral purity that priests needed before uh, coming to and serving God. So God had commanded hand-washing, but it was only for priests and it was only for certain rituals. But to make sure that nobody ever got within 10 metres of breaking that command, the religious leaders expanded it over time. They actually made a rule that every person should wash their hands before every meal, whether they were priests or not. So can you see how they've put in a fence to make sure that nobody gets within 10 metres of ever breaking God's command? So when the religious leaders come all the way from Jerusalem down to Galilee, this is what they're asking Jesus about. They're saying to him, why have you broken our fence? Now this is no small question for the religious leaders. In fact, you kind of sense, don't you, that this isn't even really a question. It's a flat-out an accusation. The most important religious leaders of Jesus' day have travelled all this way to pick a fight with Jesus. They are accusing him of something. They're accusing him of breaking the tradition of the elders, of breaking the fence that the religious leaders have put up to make sure that nobody actually breaks God's commands. That's what's going on in this passage. It's an accusation. Jesus is being accused of breaking the religious leaders' rules. Now, how does Jesus respond to the most important religious leaders of his day? Well, Jesus totally sticks it to them and they leave offended. Jesus has two responses for them in the passage. His first response is to say, obeying God is what matters. He basically says to them, So what if my disciples break the rules that you guys made up? They're just rules made up by people like you. You guys, on the other hand, actually break God's commands. Look at his first response in verse 3. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Jesus basically says, You guys are such hypocrites. 
You've travelled all this way to ask my disciples why they don't obey the rules that you guys made up about hand-washing, but you guys don't even obey the stuff that really matters. You break the commands of God. Even worse, says Jesus to these religious leaders, you guys break the command of God for the sake of obeying the own rules that you made up. And then Jesus gives them an illustration of exactly how the religious leaders use the tradition of the elders, the rules they've made up, to actually justify breaking God's command. The example there is in verse 4. Look at verse 4. Here's something that God commanded them. For God said, Honour your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. So God commands people to honour their parents. So when you're a teenager, that might look like obeying them. When you're in your 20s, that might look like spending time with them. When you're in your 50s, that might look like financially supporting them. But that's what God has said to his people. Honour your parents. If you want to think of it in terms of our illustration, that's the cliff. Honour your parents. And then Jesus tries to show them that the rules they have made up actually allows them to justify disobeying what God has said about honouring your parents. So here's the fence they've set up. Look at the fence in verse 5. But you say that if anyone declares that what might have been used to help their father or mother is devoted to God, they're not to honour their father or mother with it. So the religious leaders had actually made up a rule a fence, to govern financial gifts to God. The rule was that if you decided to devote some money to God, then that money could not be used for anything else in the meantime. So you could say, I have this money, I choose to devote it to God. When I die, this money will go to the temple. So if you had elderly parents who needed financial care, you could actually say, well, yes, mum and dad, I... I see that you're financially struggling and yes, I do actually have money that I could uh, help you out with, just like God commanded, but actually I can't do that. I can't spend it on you. I've devoted that money to God and the tradition of the elders says that now that money cannot be used for anything else. I cannot use it to honour my parents. See, Jesus' point is you could actually use a rule that the religious leaders had made up to actually justify breaking what God had said about honouring your parents. Or you can think of it this way. The fence which the religious leaders have built has actually been built over the edge of the cliff. So you can stay within the fence, you can stay within the rules that the religious leaders made, but you could actually walk off the cliff. You could actually break God's commands. Now, I know that seems like a kind of far-out illustration, which doesn't have a lot of reference to us, and maybe you're thinking, well, that kind of stuff just doesn't happen today. It might have happened many, many years ago. Actually, it does happen today. It happens quite a bit. In fact, it's happened in my own life. I want to share with you an illustration from my own life to show you how I actually used a rule that my church gave me when I was 21 to actually justify breaking what God had said without even realising what I was doing. Uh, The rule that I used to justify breaking kind of what God had said was this. Here's the rule. Uh, You must have a quiet time to start your day. Uh, I became a Christian at the age of 21 and people at my church who loved me, who wanted to really see me grow in the Lord, said this to me. 
Uh, it's really great that you've become a Christian, but now to make sure that you keep growing, you must start your day with a quiet time. You must get up, read a chapter of the Bible, and pray about it before you start your day. Uh, now that rule, uh, starting your day with a quiet time, it's not in the Bible. Uh, God has not said you must start your day with a quiet time. That was a fence. Now, what God has actually said about our Bible reading habits as Christians is actually way bigger and way deeper and way richer than just saying, start your day with a quiet time. What has God actually said about our Bible reading habits? Well, here's the cliff. Just as an example, let's take the first couple of verses of Psalm 1. Here's what God has actually said. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. So here's what God has actually said he wants in our Bible reading habits. We're to meditate on his Bible, on his law. Blessed is the one who meditates on his law. Not just read it, not just skim over it, but actually chew on it. Fill our mind with it. Think deeply on it. Notice he says we're also supposed to do that day and night. Blessed is the one who meditates on God's laws day and night. It's not an activity that is supposed to just happen in the 10 minutes before your wheat bix. Look at what else God has said he wants in our Bible reading habits. We're to delight in it. Blessed is the one who delights in the law of the Lord, who loves it, who feels like this is the highlight of their day. Our Bible reading habits are also supposed to change the way we live so that we don't walk in the way of the wicked or stand in the way sinners take or sit in the company of mockers. Now I'm not going to try and unpack Psalm 1 for us so that we understand Psalm 1, but all I want you to notice is that what God actually says about our Bible reading habits goes way beyond the simple little rule I was given to start my day with a quiet time. I just want you to sense that what God has said about Bible reading was way bigger than the fence that my church gave me to stick within. Uh, Now, I did stick within the fence, actually. Uh, I started every day by reading a chapter of the Bible and praying about it. Uh, Admittedly, I didn't really meditate on it very deeply. I didn't really delight in it. I was usually pretty groggy and tired. I didn't really think about what it means to fully obey it. But I totally followed the rule. I totally started every day with a quiet time. I stayed within the fence. But it actually wasn't anywhere near what God actually wanted for my personal Bible reading. Now, do you think anybody at my church actually asked this? Hey, Mike, since becoming a Christian, are you deeply meditating on God's word? Are you delighting in reading what God has said? Is it a highlight for you? Is it changing you deeply so that you don't walk in the way of the wicked? Nobody ever asked that. But can you guess what they did ask? They said, they asked, Mike, have you started your day with a quiet time? How many days out of seven have you nailed this week? Of course, I would say, yeah, I have started my day with a quiet time. And they would say, that's good. End of conversation. Can you sense that they only asked me about staying within the fence that they put up? The problem was that fence was kind of built over the edge of the cliff. And so I stayed within the bounds of the fence. I did my 10-minute quiet time. 
but I had fallen off the cliff. I wasn't anywhere close to actually reading scripture and loving scripture the way that God had actually wanted. I was not delighting in it. I wasn't meditating on it. Actually, in some ways, I wasn't even being changed by it. And it was was many years, actually, before I realized that Jesus might want to say to me the same thing that he says to the Pharisees in this passage. Hey, Mike, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? Why do you fail to read the scriptures, the Bible, like God would love you to, and all because you are happily and proudly staying within the fence that your church gave you? As churches, I reckon we're actually pretty good at making rules, rules about Bible reading, uh, rules about prayer, uh, rules about all sorts of stuff. And so it's really good, I think, for us to see Jesus say here, it's not about obeying the rules that religious leaders have set up. Actually, obeying God is what matters. That's Jesus' first response to the religious elite from Jerusalem who ask him, why are you breaking the tradition of the elders? Why are you breaking the fence that we put up about hand-washing? And Jesus' first response is to basically say, because I actually don't care very much about the rules that you guys made. What really matters is obeying God. That's Jesus' first response. Uh, He also has a second response, you probably noticed, a response that really drills down to the heart of this issue, I think. His second response is a clean heart is what matters. Hands that have been washed free from dirt and grime actually don't matter to God. A heart that is free from sin and dirt and filth is what matters. Pick it up from verse 10 in your Bible. Verse 10. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into someone's mouth doesn't defile them, but what comes out of their mouth, that is what defiles them. His disciples just don't understand what he means, and so they ask for clarification, and Jesus explains this further. Pick it up from verse 17. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body? But the things that come out of a person's mouth comes from the heart, and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands does not defile them. In other words, Jesus kind of says to them, so what if my disciples eat with unwashed hands? If they eat a bit of dirt... How can that possibly defile them in God's sight? The dirt goes into their mouth and into their body and then out again. What goes into the mouth cannot possibly defile them in God's sight. Jesus says it's kind of the opposite. Actually, what comes out of their mouth defiles them. Because when things like slander or lying come out of their mouth, it shows the sin, uh, the dirt that's actually in their heart. And that defiles them. Because external actions like murder or theft or lying, they come from something in here. Murder comes from anger in our heart. Theft from jealousy. Adultery comes from lust in our heart. And Jesus is saying that things like external washing of hands or any kind of outward appearance of purity, it actually doesn't fix this. It doesn't fix the dirt 
in our hearts. Jesus is saying that the problem is actually in our hearts. Now let me uh, just take a moment to prove to you that actually we all instinctively know that Jesus is right when he says the problem is in our hearts. Right now there's a projector up the back that is projecting that image up on screen for everybody in this room to see. But what if right now, in front of everybody, what if we started projecting all of the things that go through your heart and your mind? We won't put up any of your external actions, nothing you've actually done. We'll only project what goes on internally in your heart, the secret thoughts you have, the secret fantasies in your mind, the people or things that you're jealous about, what you really think of that person who you pretend to like, the things that you say in your head just to yourself that nobody else knows about. We won't put up anything you've done with your hands, No external action at all. What we will put up and project is what goes on internally in your heart for all to see. Well, how would you feel about that if we turned the lights off and did that? Surely every person in this room would run. Surely you would be worried if we put up the last 10 years of what goes on in your heart. Because surely instinctively, we actually know what Jesus says is right. The problem is in our heart. Let me try and put it another way. Who's the real me? Who's the real Mike Horgan? The Mike who has lots of sleep and when life is going pretty well, manages to control his temper, manages to control his tongue? Or the Mike that comes out when I haven't had enough sleep and life is difficult? Because that guy didn't just come from nowhere. That guy came out of here. Let's make this about you. Who do you think the real you is? The you that carefully thinks about what you say before you say it or post it online? Or is the real you revealed when you just blurt something out without actually filtering it? Uh, Will Ferrell, a comedian and actor, said something really great about this a few years ago on Twitter. Uh, I actually said to my congregation this morning that at the end of the year when I shave my beard, I'm going to leave a moustache and update the profile pic on St Matt's website to look just like this. <laughs> but Will Ferrell said something fantastic about this uh, about four years ago on Twitter. He wrote this. Before you marry a person, you should make them use a computer with slow internet to see who they really are. I think that's brilliant. Uh, That really is good. He's saying that in many ways you can actually externally hide who you really are by washing your hands, by obeying the rules about patience and kindness. You can spend years hiding your impatience, your anger, your unkindness. You can hide it, but it's in here. And eventually what's in here will actually come out for the world to see, like when you use a slow computer. It will show the world who you really are. Or the way Jesus put it, which unfortunately hasn't been as popular on Twitter over the last five years, the way Jesus put it is in verse 19. Look at verse 19. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, 
murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. Now, here comes the problem for us. Look at verse 20. These things, these things in our heart, these are what defile a person. That's why rules cannot save us. Because rules, they can only stop you doing things with your hands. Rules actually cannot clean your heart. And our hearts, that projector screen of shame and filth and dirt, totally defile us before God. Rules will never save. Washing hands will never clean. This Sunday uh, at my congregation in the morning was really great. We had a baptism. Uh, We baptised a girl from Hong Kong. Uh, The packaging on the little pool that we blew up to baptise her in told me 1,126 litres of water to fill that pool. So we baptised her today. 1,126 litres of water we baptised her in. Not a single drop of that reached her heart. Not a single drop of that scrubbed any filth and shame and guilt from her heart. We could dip her in as much water as we like, but water would not have cleaned her in God's sight. Because what truly defiles us before God are the things that are deep, deep in here, where rules cannot reach and where water cannot wash. But where rules cannot reach, where water cannot wash, the blood of Jesus can. It's the blood of Jesus. It's the death of Jesus that actually washes us clean in God's sight. The death of Jesus at the cross to pay for our sin, to wash us clean of our guilt and shame, and not just the outward things that people see, but the inward stuff that nobody knows about except God. The blood of Jesus washes us clean. Which is why in Ephesians 5, the Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy by washing her. It's why in Corinthians, when Paul lists all the things that defiled the Corinthian church, they were sexually immoral, they were thieves, he lists all this stuff and then he says those great words, but you were washed in the name of the Lord Jesus. At the cross, Jesus paid the price for our moral filth. He washed us clean from our sin that separates us from God, not with water, but with the blood, with his death. Do you feel the shame, do you feel the dirt of that secret inner life projected up on screen for all to see? Do you sense the dirt and brokenness of our own heart? Do you sense the guilt of actually knowing that God reads every human heart just like that projector? I certainly do. So never put your hope in rules. Never put your hope in fences. Put your hope in the one thing, or or rather the one person, that can wash you clean. Put your hope in Jesus and his death on the cross for our sin and shame. Amen.